It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The outdoor apparel and gear company Patagonia calls itself the activist company. Following the 2016 presidential election, it gave away 100% of its Black Friday sales to environmental causes. Patagonia sued President Trump over national monuments, and it's donating the $10 million it saved from Trump's tax cuts to conservation groups. Rose Marcario is the company's CEO. The reality is, you know, government is failing. You know, it's failing us. And when that happens, you have to step up. Is activism good for business? Today, Marcario talks about its effect on the bottom line. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Patagonia has been supporting environmental causes for 30 years, ever since its founder, Yvonne Chouinard, noticed how powerful activism is in protecting wild nature. Rose Marcario became CEO in 2008. She says environmental groups need support more than ever because of the climate crisis and the federal government's unprecedented steps to shrink protected areas. Patagonia sued the Trump administration over its resolution to reduce two national monuments in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante. Marcario says it's the biggest elimination of public lands in U.S. history. She sits down with Bloomberg TV's Eric Schatzker. Their conversation was held in June of 2018. Here's Schatzker. I feel compelled to begin with a little bit of personal disclosure. <laughs> Talking to Rose is not like, for me anyway, interviewing Jamie Dimon. I am a Chase customer, but I have one Chase card in my wallet. <laughs> I own an awful lot of Patagonia stuff. <laughs> um, since buying my first Cinchilla Fleece as a teenager in the mid-1980s, which I still have, I have amassed what my wife would probably call a ridiculous collection of clothing, ski wear, fly fishing gear, and luggage. In my head this morning, I counted 54 items, and I think I'm probably missing a few. <laughs> so I asked myself, why? Why do I own so much of that stuff? Uh, it's obviously because Patagonia makes great products. It's also because Patagonia has the best guarantee in the business, and if you use the stuff, you value that a company that stands behind its products. But there's something else. I know that I was drawn to the brand and remain a loyal customer for another reason. Patagonia stands for something. A philosophy that begins with environmental protection and extends to fair trade, better labor standards, sustainable agriculture, energy conservation, and a whole lot more. In fact, Patagonia calls itself the activist company. And Rose, I feel like that's a good place for us to start. What does it mean to be the activist company? <laughs> well, you know, I think that from the very beginnings of the company, and the company's been around for 46 years now, um, Yvonne spent his life uh, exploring wild places and adventuring in wild places. This is Yvonne Schwinar, the founder. Yeah. And, and he, he wanted, like I think anyone who has an experience of awe and beauty when they're in the outdoors, you know, he wanted to protect those places. And he was, he was very much moved by a local action near our offices years ago where a young um, environmental activist um, was showed up to a town council meeting and started showing photos of the life in the river because there's a developer wanting to channelize the river. 
And, um, and it was a very moving presentation, and they decided not to, <laughs> to, to channelize the river. And I think Yvonne got the idea that, you know, activism really is the thing, grassroots activism is the thing that will protect and conserve wild nature. And very little money, actually, less than 3% of philanthropy goes to environmental causes, um, which is kind of crazy because it's our planet. <laughs> And Yvonne felt that the best um, use of money was to grassroots activism. So the really small folks, you know, protecting your local river or water supply or stream or mountain. And that's, that's really how it got started. And then he started 1% for the planet. And we give 1% of our sales uh, to grassroots environmental groups. And it's just grown from there. So, you know, the, there's a lot of talk today about activist companies. But the reality is we've been involved in grassroots environmental activism for more than 30 years. So it's, it's not really new to us. Uh, the political and the, the climate is different right now. Um, there's more urgency, I think, because of what's going on with, uh, with the climate crisis. But, you know, it's always been a part of our DNA, I would say. Let's talk for a moment about that urgency. Your company's mission, evidently, to anyone who has a look at what Patagonia does and what Patagonia says has taken on a new sense of urgency since the 2016 election. Why? Well, first, you know, conservation has always been a very bipartisan thing, you know. Um, it's, it's not, it's not a, a polarizing issue, really. Uh, climate has become a polarizing issue, which I don't really understand because, you know, I, if 99% of scientists agree with something, I'm going to go with that, you know? <laughs> I, I don't really understand why it's uh, even up for debate. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the, the thing that was the, sort of the most shocking to us was this rollback of these designated monuments. And the Trump administration um, basically undid by executive order uh, two national monuments. Um, which has never been done in the history of the country. And it was the biggest elimination of public lands in history. And so we felt it was really important to be vocal about that. And, our, and we're actually suing the administration um, as a result. And so, So yeah, I mean, I mean, when something really unusual like that happens, I, I think you have to step up, you know? <laughs> it, it takes a lot for a company of Patagonia's size to take on the federal government. Tell us about that decision. How did you decide, I presume it was you and Yvonne and perhaps some other people as well, that the best course of action, the most sensible course of action for Patagonia was to <laughs> sue Trump? <laughs> Well, Yvonne, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't care about the, whatever the ramifications would have been for doing that. I mean, I think we were working with these environmental groups on the ground. Um, you know, it was pretty clear that the administration intended to do this. They did this kind of sham review of 26 monuments. You know, these, these monuments take decades to designate. So the idea that, that, that Ryan Zinke could have looked at 26 monuments and made a determination in a few months was absolutely absurd. It was crazy. And then they, they did this thing where they asked for public comment. Well, all the public comments came in positive for the monuments, and then they did it anyway. 
So, you know, obviously they're serving the interests of oil, gas, and mining. It's no big surprise. I mean, it, it wasn't a hard decision for us to make. Um, it, it was just part of who we are, you know. The, the question of, you know, whether to do it in a pu really public way um, was, I don't know, maybe even a five-minute decision. I don't think it took us that long to decide. How's the lawsuit going? Uh, well, there's bad news on Grand Staircase because there's a copper mine that wants to mine it. No big surprise. They, they acted like they were gonna, the state was gonna manage it really well and you know, now there's a copper mine. You know, the same thing is gonna likely happen with Bears Ears and so um, yeah, we're in court in DC and we'll see where things go and um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll have the right outcome. I mean, I think, I think we will, it seems, you know, from what we've heard, an illegal action to undo the undo these monuments. T tell me about the feelings that animate these kinds of decisions. Do you feel yourself? Do you feel Patagonia is at war with the president? You know, I this is this is a policy thing. You know, I don't think that. Um, like I said, I mean, conservation is really, really bipartisan, <laughs> you know, and I, I was worried that my, we have dealers all over the country, and I was worried that those dealers might be upset, and they weren't upset at all. They were like, game on, what more can we do? Because this is wrong. It was a bridge too far for them. Do you perceive a split among Republicans, and the reason I say Republicans is because the House Natural Resources Committee, which is led by the Republicans, given that they have the majority, um, effectively urged Americans to boycott Patagonia. They did. They said, Patagonia, don't buy it. I don't, I don't know that there's, that's ever happened in history before, <laughs> that an elected House Natural Resources Committee called for the boycott of a U.S. brand. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean... I have to say, like when it happened, we were all like, wow. I mean, it, it, and then we just, you know, we just keep going. I, I think that the reality is, you know, government is failing. You know, it's failing us. And when that happens, you have to step up. You know, and I think, and, and activism is important. The title of this conversation, as you know, Rose, is <laughs> Activism is good business. You believe activism is good business. Help well, us to understand why. Well, it hasn't hurt our business at all. It, it, our bit, we're going to have the best year ever this last year. And, and I think our customers understand it. You know, they understand us. They understand what we stand for. And, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, our employees are totally engaged. And um, because they feel like they're doing something about the problems that are happening, and I, I, I feel, I feel like generally it's been a really positive for the business. I think it's been really important for us to raise awareness because I think there's so much noise going on and so much bad stuff happening every day that you know it's hard to keep track of it all. And so we're, we're keeping track of public lands and, and the rollbacks that e, the EPA administrator is doing right now. So, you know, we're, we're trying to keep track of that stuff. Is it possible to measure? So, so let's describe 
Patagonia's approach, or at least the results of its approach, uh, if you believe in them and you support them as a halo effect. Is it possible to measure that halo effect? Because yeah, I there, mean, are, you know, there are other companies, Arcteryx, Marmot, North Face, the list goes on, that make good products. They're good competitors, I presume. Absolutely. But there's a reason that someone might choose to do business with Patagonia, buy a Patagonia product instead of buying one of theirs. Well, after the election, you know, we did this campaign where we gave away our sales uh, for one day to environmental causes because we just felt like we had to... 100%. Yeah, 100% of our sales from that day. And I remember calling Yvonne and saying, I don't think it'll be a very big day. <laughs> <laughs> and then the ticker kind of started going, and I started getting the call, well, it's twice what we thought it would be. Well, it's three times what we thought it would be. Well, it's four times what we thought it would be. And I'm starting to have a little bit of a heart palpitation because I'm realizing we're giving away $10 million that day. Um, but we did it. And, and all of those customers, a lot of those customers were new to us because we, we didn't really make a big deal out of it, but it kind of went viral, you know? Like a lot of people started posting and talking about it. And a lot of those customers that came to us during that campaign who'd never bought a pair of or anything from Patagonia have, have stuck with us, which I think is showing that people really want to shop brands that share their values or that they feel like are contributing in a way to society and to the environment that is meaningful. You perceive that. It's, it's, do you, well, I know do, it to be true from... from you customer know, my, engagement? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I absolutely know it to be true. How much time and effort do you spend engaging with customers to uncover those things, to understand better who they are, what they want, what they, com what they want the company to be, perhaps, than it isn't, that it isn't already? You know, we, we, we live our values, and we're very connected into core sports communities and core environmental activist communities and so we we're very um, and we're you know we have customers all over the country and uh, we've been in business for 46 years so we have quite quite a footprint in the US and internationally and I think you know we're learning every day like everyone else from each other and um, yeah, I, I think you know, we're a complicated, global, multi-channel business, but we all know what our values are. And I think it helps guide the company, and the company has a moral compass, and, you know, people can count on us to do the right thing and be transparent about it. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's conversation was first recorded on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. This year's festival is coming up. Starting June 20th, hundreds of speakers will gather in Aspen, Colorado to share ideas, raise challenging questions, and inspire thought to action. Here, Gita Gopinath, the IMF's first woman chief economist, talk about how trade wars have impacted the global economic mood. Danny Shapiro, author of the memoir Inheritance, opens up about family secrets. And three leading genome and ethics experts discuss CRISPR and its moral implications at Aspen Ideas Health, the opening segment of the festival. Join us. Get your festival pass at aspenideas.org. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Eric Schatzker. Let's talk for a moment about 
the moral compass, the company's values, its standards, its principles. We've established that environmental activism and a few other things directly related to it mm -hmm. are part of that equation, but, but it's an incomplete picture. Fill in the gaps. Well, I, I mean, we're always looking at our supply chains. And, you know, if you're in business and your business is growing, you're always doing environmental harm in some form. You know, we recognize that through this 1% for the planet giving. But um, so we're always looking at how to green our supply chain. Um, right now, we're spending a lot of time looking at regenerative agriculture and working on a regenerative agriculture uh, certification because um, we need to regenerate some of the damage that we've done to the planet. And um, so business has to not just think about using things up um, and unlimited supply chains because we're now using the resources of four planets. You know, so if everyone starts consuming the way the U.S. is consuming, then, you know, we'd need four planets. Well, can that, is that sustainable? It's not. I mean, so we have to be thinking about new supply chains. Eileen Fisher is here, and we just did a panel about um, reclaimed and recycled in initiatives. And, um, you know, we work together on trying to, you know, work on our supply chains together. I mean, you know, we've got to collaborate more because we're kind of at this urgent point for the planet right now. How do you do those things? and remain competitive on cost at the same time? Well, in, investing in new supply chains is expensive. I mean, that's, but it's also innovation. And I think if you stop innovating, then you don't have a brand anymore. I mean, then you're just living on incremental sales growth. So we invest a lot in innovation because um, that's really like the future of our product and the future of supply chain and commerce and so it you know to me it's it pays it pays in the long it pays in the long term and I think Yvonne would say the same thing after 46 years <laughs> you're absolutely right of course that conservation and environmental protection shouldn't be a partisan issue but it is and I wonder about the polarizing effect that the company's positions have on your customers. Do you? Well, we're always willing to have conversations with our customers about what we think and why we think it. And we're super transparent about it. And we put our positions out on our blog or letters that we send to the government we make you know, public for people to see. And so I, I feel like we're, we're pretty straightforward about putting our position out. You know, some people are going to be mad and, and, you know, not want to buy our product because of our stance. Um, and that's okay. How do you um, reach those people who might be tempted to think ill of Patagonia because of its political identity, let's say, but at the same time support many of the company's initiatives. I'm thinking hunters, for example. Well, I don't think, you know, I think that... They're public, deep conservationists, I think, too. Yeah, I think public lands and conservation still is a very bipartisan issue. I think it's politics that have, you know, caused that House Resources Committee to do that. I think a lot of those guys are funded by oil and gas and they were mad and we were calling them out and 
you know? It's just the reality. And, um, I, yeah, so, I, I mean, I haven't experienced it that people are that, you know, um, that upset or need to be brought mm -hmm. along. I mean, they, they basically know where we stand and they make a decision about whether they want to shop us or not. And, and most people, you know, make, make that decision and we respect that. Are you trying intently or perhaps quietly to turn customer affinity into customer activism? Well, it's interesting, you know, we, we launched, because a lot of people after the election said, I really want to get more involved in environmental issues, how do we do it, you know, and, and we had this 30 years of experience granting to grassroots environmental activism, and so I said, well, maybe we should make that just more available for people to see, and um, they, we built out this tool called Patagonia Action Works, and so our customers can go in and see locally the groups in their neighborhood that are, um, defending air, water, and soil, or public lands. And there's a lot of people that are using that, we're finding, that aren't our customers, but are, are interested in environmental activism. So I think that's really cool. You know, wh whoever, however someone wants to enter the brand, whether it's through product, whether it's through sport, whether it's through activism, whether it's through whatever, I, I think that that's, there are all kinds of ways to enter, enter the brand and experience it and get to know it. And that, you know, to me, that's just part of having a great brand, you know, and it's not really a political issue or not a political issue or whatever. The Trump administration is colliding with companies in other ways. We know it in the past few days. Harley-Davidson has announced that it's going to have to move some production overseas mm -hmm. because the tariffs imposed by the European Union would uh, hit the company to the to the extent of $100 million. Perhaps some of you read the Washington Post story about the nail manufacturer in the South that's closing by September because it can no longer buy Mexican steel at the same price as it used to, costing some 500 jobs. I wonder, in that context, do any of the announcements the Trump administration has made about tariffs or any of the retaliatory tariffs that the Chinese and the Europeans and the Canadians and the Mexicans and others have announced um, pose risks to Patagonia's own supply chain or perhaps even your bottom line? We haven't seen it. It's probably because we make apparel and the president's daughter makes apparel. <laughs> it's just a guess, but... Um, you know, I think it's unprecedented, though, that there's an American president who's attacking American companies on a daily basis. And I think companies need to stand up more about that because it's wrong. You know, it's wrong. Have you thought, whether at the behest of the president or for other reasons, about bringing any manufacturing back to the United States? We actually manufacture in the United States. Um, not everything that we make, but some things that we make. Um, it's become cost non-competitive to manufacture outside the United States on certain, on certain uh, product lines. That's just the reality of being, having a competitive business. And I think that's true of almost everyone making apparel for the most part. You mentioned earlier that regenerative agriculture is a big push for Patagonia because mm -hmm. 
for the reasons that you cited. Where else would you say the company is playing a decidedly activist role? Well, you know, well, like this year we're asking other companies to join us in like giving their employees some time off to vote the midterms. Because that that's been a long-standing practice and policy of Patagonia. Yeah, right? it, well, we we haven't been we we we've just started doing it. We did it last year. Um, I think it's important for people to understand their responsibility and citizenship, and I think corporations can help people with that. And something like thirty-five percent of people don't vote because of scheduling conflicts. And uh, we did it. We did it last year in the election, and I had a. a a guy emailed me who works in our uh, Reno distribution center and he said, you know, I wouldn't have had time to vote if you hadn't given us the day off just because my wife's schedule and our daycare and, um, and it really stuck in my mind. And I, I, you know, I think like Canada gives, their, gives everybody in the country a half day or four hours to vote. You know, we, we need to start thinking about how to engage people in, in voting because the turnout is pretty abysmal uh, in the midterms and it's and it's an, a really important time, I think. What's the response been from other CEOs it's so far? It's been good so far. I think we're going to have some good good news in the next few weeks about who's joining, and um, there's some big companies, and it's, it's nice. It's great. What are you calling it? Uh, let my people go vote is sort of what we're <laughs> <laughs> calling our campaign, but they can all the CEOs can call their campaigns anything they want. So, yeah. But I think it's important right now that, that uh, you know, CEOs act as leaders and just remind people about their citizenship. Rose, you mentioned earlier how little um, concern, if you will, there was among you and among <laughs> Yvonne about whether or not to sue the Trump administration over the, uh, the Bears Ears National Monument. At the same time, I wonder to myself, is there any action or campaign you've considered and not undertaken because of the potential risk to the business? No. No. You know, the only thing that was at all, you know, a question in my mind as a leader was that when we took this, this stance on suing the Trump administration, uh, there was a headline that came out that said I was leading the corporate resistance against Trump, which is a sort of unfortunate headline, but, you know, and it, it wasn't... It, you don't see yourself that way. I don't, I don't really see myself that way. I just see us as taking the stands that our company takes. But I, I was worried about the safety of my employees um, because there were kinds of threats and stuff coming in. So I was worried about them. But they, you know, and we, we put extra security and did those kinds of things. But those are the, that's the only thing I was really worried about. And I think we handled it well in terms of getting, you know... But, but to, to, you know, we really didn't have any issues around it, to be honest. I don't know how many people in this room are familiar with your resume, but before <laughs> you came to Patagonia, you worked for a number of companies, LA Gear, mm -hmm. um, International Rectifier, General Magic. You spent almost five years in private equity. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your personal journey from executive to activist CEO. Well, I kind of grew up in a, you know, Italian immigrant family. My grandfather uh, came here with a fourth grade education. His granddaughter ended up being a CEO. So I think immigrants with fourth grade educations are okay with me. <laughs> um, you know, 
so I, I just, you know, I, I, I worked hard to get where I was. And then at a certain point, I was feeling like, God, you know, I'm just, especially when I was working um, as a CFO of a public company, you sort of start to see that, like, what you're doing is, like, these quarterly marches to earnings per share. And most of the time, it's bad for business, and it's bad for your employees, and it's bad for the planet. And I started to have like a cognitive dissonance about what I was doing and whether it was really good and whether I was really doing anything good for the world. And part of it's the structure, like the, the, the quarterly earnings thing is like killing the, the planet, right? It, it assumes that there's going to be unlimited growth and there isn't. There's gonna be a point at which all the resources are used up. <laughs> and. So it was a, you know, a kind of a personal reflection point for me about what am I going to do. And, and, um, and I took a break and I took some time off. And, um, you became a Buddhist? I, I was studying Buddhism years before that, but my sort of, you know, my spiritual life and my home life was colliding with what I was doing in business. And then I started working in private equity and it's even worse because then you're, <laughs> then you're marching to the five-year exit where the shareholders make a bunch of money and it's like, that's okay for those shareholders that make a bunch of money. And I love capitalism. I think capitalism is great. I just think capitalism needs to evolve. Like it hasn't evolved and the world has changed. And you know, the resources are limited and we need to be more inventive and imaginative about what is capitalism and how can it serve people and the planet and not just a few financial shareholders. I think it's possible. Patagonia is a great model of it. We're totally competitive, financially competitive with our, you know, um, with other retailers. So it's possible, it can be done. And I think it's a good, good model. I think the overarching public model though is is devastating in the long run. It's sort of a suicidal model, and I think it needs to change. <laughs> I presume, I know you know who Larry Fink is, the CEO of BlackRock. BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager, and every year he writes a letter to the CEOs of BlackRock's portfolio companies. And this year he said, quote, to prosper over time, every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show how it makes a positive contribution to society. Companies must benefit all of their stakeholders, including shareholders, employees, customers, and the communities in which they operate. Is that the kind of thing you have in mind when you talk about capitalism evolving? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I think, you know, I think the, the benefit corporation movement, I don't know if you guys know about that movement very much, but you should check it out, um, is a good start. It provides a sort of legal structure for that, um, and uh, yeah, it, it is evolving, I think. And I, you know, I think the customers that, especially the younger customers that we have, they they expect, you know, brands to to provide some value <laughs> to the world, and and they're very suspect of brands that do not are just wreaking destruction and havoc on the world, and that's that's my experience of, you know, just. Watching this, watching this kind of happen in real time. Does it get a bit lonely at times? In the sense that many, I know for a fact that many companies and many CEOs share the same values that Patagonia yeah. stands for. It must frustrate you that more of them don't either agitate for change or at the very least speak out publicly 
more often. It's really, it's really interesting because, a lot, and I know a lot of, because I worked in the public sphere, I know a lot of public company CEOs and CFOs, and, and a lot of them know exactly what's going on. They understand, you know, there's, they're smart people. They know what's going on with the climate crisis. They see it in their own backyards. They see uh, the income disparity. They see the issues around supply chains um, not being unlimited, um, more scarce resources. They see it, uh, but. But, but they have financial shareholders that don't support them doing anything that's, um, that's active. And if they do do something that's active and something goes wrong in the business, that's the first thing they blame. And, you know, I've had friends lose jobs that way and things like that. But, you know, I think it's, it's really the, it's the investor class that needs to change because they're destroying the planet. <laughs> I mean, they are. And, and I think the pressure has got to come from the customer. It's like the college students that, you know, that came together to, to make their, you know, annuities get out of fossil fuels, right? Like, they would never have done that otherwise. You know, they need the pressure. And that's why I think um, customers have a lot of power to vote with their dollar and vote for brands that they feel like are doing the right thing and to not participate in brands. And then I also think there's gonna be a lot of disruption because a lot of the young people that I know are working on companies that understand that there's a climate crisis and are you know, working on disruptive technology and that kind of thing. And if, if, you're not, if you're not paying attention to that stuff, then you're just gonna get left behind. And uh, you know, it's like when Toyota came out with the Prius, everyone was like, oh no, we have to like pay attention to electric cars. Well, you don't wanna be like on the long end of that curve, I would say. I'm, I'm gonna hazard a guess that a not insignificant percentage of the people in this room are investors. What would you have them do? Oh, well, I hope I didn't offend <laughs> But I do think it's the investor class that needs to change because I think that, you know, the reality is it's really about returns. Like, and I, I, this comes really from my background in finance. I, I mean, if you expect that you're going to invest and get a 500x return and that's fair and that's right, I don't think, I think that I'd be okay with less of a return and a better world. And I think that part needs to change. You can still have great capitalism and great years and great, but it, you, don't, you don't have to, you know, destroy everything in your path, you know, to make a few people very, very rich all the time. And, and the income disparity is going to get worse, obviously, with the tax cuts and stuff like that. So, you know, it, we're, we're going into what I think is going to be a very challenging time. And investors need to recognize, A, that there's a problem. <laughs> that we are using you know, resources of multiple planets, that we are in a climate crisis and you know, accept the actual fact of science, uh, that the climate is radically changing. You just have to look at the amount of events that have happened in this last 12 months to see that we're facing some very serious issues. And you know, however they want to frame it, risk is basically how people are framing it, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's really the right frame. It's not a very exciting and inspiring frame to me. <laughs> um, but I actually think that business could be the biggest agent for change in the world in, in a positive way. Um, 
and it takes more collaboration, I think, and, um, and uh, more recognition that we are in the problem that we are in. Yeah. There are other companies fighting the good fight. Absolutely. Who are they? Um, there's so many. I mean, there's the entire B Corp community. Um, Who's that? Um, well, I mean, everyone that's that's a registered B Corp, I think, has a has a um, is is thinking about these things. My partner in crime, Eileen Fisher, over there, we're working on things together. Um, uh, Stella McCartney, I think, is doing some cool stuff. There's there's you know there's all kinds of new innovative companies um, in our in our fashion and apparel world. You know, there's, a, there's only a few right now, but hopefully there'll be more. Even the most principled companies, Rose, have to make compromises for the sake of the business. What are the most uncomfortable compromises you've had to make as CEO? Oh, God, I feel like I make uncomfortable compromises every day, but um, I don't know. It's always hard when you, it's always hard when you are building supply chains and they, they work or they don't work, and you invest in innovation, and then the innovation fails. <laughs> I mean, those are those are kind of the hardest decisions, which is like to pull out of innovations or to take a step back, and um, because you're affecting people or supply chains. You know, sometimes we have supply chains that just you know aren't aren't uh, you know passing our audits or something like that, and they're earnest, good people, but then we have to pull out of them. I mean, it's it's those are the kinds of things that I. You know, that I, I find difficult, you know, to difficult decisions, I guess. As far as the business is concerned, and I know that values and principles and the business Patagonia are very much intertwined, as you've explained, but if we isolate business from those things, what are you, what are you focused on most right now? What are your priorities? Well, we're really focused on uh, regenerative agriculture because I said it has a regenerative quality to the earth. You know, we've, we've been in organic cotton for more than 20 years and um, chemical cotton, which probably a lot of people are wearing in this room, is one of the most um, pesticide-ridden crops in the world. Um, it probably has a lot to do with the pollinator decline and all of that. Um, so we're looking at um, both bio-based alternatives um, to synthetics, uh, less chemically laden, um, you know, uh, synthetic pro products. We're looking at microplastics. That's a big issue. Um, so yeah, we've got we've kind of got a lot of priorities around really just greening our supply chain more. And there's trade-offs between durability because a lot of our product is you know athlete driven and things like that. There are trade-offs between durability and, um, you know, uh, uh, environmental footprint. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing, and I hope that, you know, gets thought about here, and we're, we're also looking at re-commerce and, you know, how to, how to basically take care of our customer from end to end with their product, which we're, which we're doing, but I feel like there's still more to do there in terms of just educating the customer that the longer that you keep something in use, the better it is for the planet. That's the single most important thing that you can do as, as a person who buys clothing. So, you most, know, I most think getting people, that Most capitalists across, would find that antithetical, <laughs> right? Buy less of our stuff. 
But you know, I, I think that that's just you know that's just a reductive way to look at it. You know, I, I do. I, I think that there's all kinds of interesting stuff in this in, in supply chain, and there's all kinds of really cool upcycled stuff going on. And yeah, I mean, we're you know that's going to be the supply chains of the future because because there aren't going to be virgin materials around. So you got to get good at it. Where do you see business opportunities for Patagonia? To I'll use the word even though it may not be the most apt one in the context of this conversation, business opportunities for Patagonia to exploit by virtue of its, uh, the brand value and recognition that it has, places you could go that you haven't gone before. Well, we have a very, very nascent food business right now. Um, so we're working on this idea of, um, and it's called Patagonia Provisions, and we're working on this idea of regenerative food supply uh, chains because agriculture is one of the biggest contributors to, uh, to cl climate crisis and global warming. And um, there's a lot of great supply chains out there. They're small. Um, they're fully organic and regenerative and sustainable, and we want to kind of amplify them and help to, to grow them. I think that that would be a, have a really positive impact on the, on the planet long term. Bears Ears is hardly the only environmental battleground in America today. Are you considering more action, legal or otherwise, against the federal government or perhaps other government entities? Well, right now we're, we're looking at basically all the regulations that Pruitt is rolling back in the EPA, and we're trying to connect up with our uh, grassroots environmental activists around the country so that any of the deregulation that's having a negative effect on local water sources and um, air quality and uh, soil uh, We'll, we'll have a handle on and be able to storytell about it and also, you know, in, engage activism around it because I think it's, it's really important. Like I said, a lot of things are happening every day and it's hard to keep track of it all, but there's some good people out there keeping track of it all and we're going to work with them and, you know, hopefully bring some of that to light and we'll see what comes of that. If President Trump were sitting in the chair I'm sitting in right now, what would you tell him? You know, I, I don't know, Eric. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't really think about him as a person very much, to be honest. I, I don't. I, I, I don't. I think that, I think about, you know, I think about our our water and our air and our soil and business and I mean I don't know I, I don't think about I don't know I don't, I don't feel like I have a personal bone to pick with him I, I don't I mean I, 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 I think his policies are horrible and they're bad for the environment one last question for you before we open it up to the floor it's a multiple choice question more than anything else, the CEO of Patagonia must be A, independent, B, unorthodox, C, fearless, D, a little bit crazy. Definitely D.
All right, let's have some Thank questions you, from Eric. the audience. Who would like to ask uh, something of Rose? Uh, that hand right there shot up first, I believe. So we'll go to that row. One, one of the questions I have, we were talking about educating the customer and getting out there. How about within your own organization, all of your employees, colleagues, uh, fellow employees, he both here in the United States and abroad, how, how do you educate them? And so their kind of, their tentacles will spread to the world through all of them, <laughs> either working at Patagonia forever or working at other places where that, those philosophies would spread. Well, we have a really nice ecosystem of, of people because we have a lot of people that have been there for a long time and they kind of also help train the new people. We also have in our corporate offices and our distribution center on-site childcare. So we got the next generation right there, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, and, you know, most of the people that work for us work, share our values. And so it's very easy for people like them. They're super knowledgeable and they do, you know, they do environmental internships. So they go out and work for some of the NGOs that we fund and they get involved in local environmental activism. And so, you know, it's, it's not really hard to share. I mean, like a complicated issue, like the public lands issue we do, um, Corley over there does amazing communication to all of our teams and lets them, you know, know all the talking points when a customer comes in so they can have a good conversation with a customer about it and be knowledgeable about the issue and why we're doing what we're doing. And um, so, it, yeah, it doesn't, I, I, I think it, um, it's, it's more just a part of our DNA and, and I try and just kind of communicate once a month with everybody about what we're doing so they know, you know, they, they hear from me directly. How about this side of the room? So you mentioned microplastics, yeah, and we all love our fleece. Yeah, what's Patagonia doing about that problem? Yeah, so we've done a bunch of studies. We've um, and and pretty much any synthetic garment sheds that's made out of us, and and actually natural fiber shed as well. But um, it's really the issue of breaking down. So we're working with um, some companies on the idea of home laundering and what to do around home laundering. Uh, we've put out a washing bag that collects the um, that collects the fibers. Um, it's not the best solution, but it's a short-term solution until we get the. Um, that's uh, a long road to hoe, yeah. huh? It's a long road to hoe, but you know, there's a lot of people thinking about it, working on it. I feel like we're going to have a good, um, we'll probably be talking about it soon in the next month or so, some good news about, you know, partnership around that. And, and also, um, you know, plastics in the ocean is a big deal. Actually, single-use plastics is the worst, um, the worst contributor to ocean plastics, and that's mostly related to food, like water bottles and packaging and food, um, which is about food safety. That's another area that really needs to be innovated in <laughs> because like really good innovation would solve that. It's, it's, a, it's like we just need to work on it. Um, but yeah, that's, we're, we're, we're all over that because we make a lot of fleece and um, you know, we're all over looking at how to also use natural fibers differently. And so. There were some more here. Thank you, Rose. Um, I'm wondering, given what you said about the drive to quarterly profits destroying business and planet and employees. Is it possible for a publicly traded corporation to do the right thing in its current form, or would it have to adopt something like a benefit legal structure? 
Well, I'm hoping that the benefit corporation movement starts to inform the public company structure. I mean, whenever I talk to like the head of a big public company, I always tell them like, go after that because that's the most important thing to do. Like, help change that um, because it's the biggest issue that we have. Really, it's a short-term thinking, um, and it's it's hurting the planet and it's hurting people. And it will and it and it it is becoming more exponential um, in terms of its impact and urgency in terms of what what I've seen, and I've been looking at it for 30 years, so. Is social impact investing um, a promising route? I think so. I, I think it's difficult, though, because, you know, a lot of these what, funds that call themselves social funds all want the same thing. They want, like, a, you know, some huge exit, <laughs> you know? And they, 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 don't, they don't want a reasonable, just a reasonable return. They want a giant return. And, you know, that's... I think I think the whole process needs to change, and um, I, I'm really I'm really optimistic that it can change. I think that the changes at the fringes with the benefit corporation movement um, could really make things happen, um, and some big public companies are signing on to become B Corps, so I think that's good. Right there. Uh, hi. Uh, my question for you is, uh, and a big topic here at the Ideas Festival is diversity and inclusion. And for a large company, I'm curious to know how you spend, like how much time and energy do you spend on that, and how would you um, advise a smaller company keep that theme without losing the ultimate goal of the, the, uh, the original activism um, you know, concept that you're focused on? Yeah. Well, it's a big issue in our industry. You know, our industry's kind of grown up over the last 40 years, and, you know, if you go to the outdoor retailer show, there's a lot of, you know, old white guys. It's just the reality of um, the outdoor industry. And, um, and so it's, a, it's definitely a, a topic that's on our minds. But, you know, we, we've been, we've been um, doing things that I feel like are really going to build on um, our diversity and inclusion by just you know changing our hiring practices, changing our changing our internship programs, granting to grassroots environmental social, social justice groups that might be a little bit in a little bit different um, uh, framework for um, grassroots environmental activism. So I think we'll get there. But you know it's like it's like gender parity. You know it's like you don't get there all at once. You know we have gender parity because we have on-site childcare. I think that's the reason Patagonia has gender parity at all levels of management. But, you know, these changes, I think, take time, and it's frustrating. You know, activists give us a hard time and say you're not there yet, and it's like, yeah, we get it, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's an issue in the whole industry, and, and I feel like the whole industry is recognizing that and starting to, to work on it. Uh, the back of the room there. Hi, thanks for being here. Yeah. I, my question is about leadership and how you as a leader has, have how you've changed and incorporated activism into your leadership? You know, I don't really think of it as, I mean, sort of activism is kind of the word of the day, but I don't, I, I really think about it as incorporating my values more congruently into my life. And Patagonia is a place where I can bring my whole self to work, you know, my value system, what I believe in, um, my skill set. And so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like, um, it feels very natural, like the progression of doing that. Um, 
and it feels like I'm more in tune and aligned with um, my work and my values than I ever have been in my life. And I think for anybody who's worked for anybody else during their life, that is something that I think we all kind of aspire to, to have. And what I'm excited about is like the, the younger generation, like they want that right now. And it took me until I was, you know, in my 30s to figure that out. Did, so. you, did you ever have to push Yvonne beyond his comfort zone? No, I don't think so. I mean, we, we both bounce all ideas off of each other, and sometimes he says no to my ideas, and, you know, I sometimes say no to his ideas if I can. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like we've ever... I, I've never felt pushed beyond my comfort zone, and I don't think he would say, say the same. I think he'd say the same. I think we still have time for a couple more. Um, what's it like um, being a female CEO? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know what it would feel like to be a male CEO. <laughs> so... <laughs> But I have to say that like my only examples of being a CEO were male CEOs when I was, you know, like going through my work career. And and at a certain point when I became CEO, I realized that like I couldn't do that because that just wasn't me. And so I just had to be more myself. And the more that I was more myself, the better CEO I think I've been. So <laughs> And last question to this gentleman, uh, right there. Yeah, um, my question is about the innovation side of your yeah. clothing production. And um, are you guys looking, so my understanding is that hemp is not cost effective a lot of the time because it has lacked innovation in terms of extracting fibers and things like that. Yeah. But it can be looked at as a regenerative crop like you guys have been supporting. Are you guys looking into hemp um, for the future now that legalization has been occurring across the United States and parts of the world? Yeah, we're actually already making hemp product um, and we're really happy about this industrialized hemp um, because it's a great crop, it is regenerative, um, it's, uh, it, it's restorative I think to certain regions around the U.S. especially. The issue is supply chain, um, you know, the cording equipment and, you know, being able to actually like take that um, raw material and make it into a fiber, which right now it has to be made overseas because just the supply chain doesn't exist. So, you know, we're working on that and working on US-based hemp, and I think it's, um, it's really exciting. It's great fabric. It's part of our workwear line, if you want to check it out. Um, it's, it's a really durable and great fabric. Yeah. Rose, I think we started this conversation uh, with a room full of people who loved your products, and I think we've concluded it with a room full of people who love your company for a whole lot more. Oh, thanks, Eric. Please Thank join you me in thanking Rose Marcario. Rose Marcario is president and CEO of Patagonia and Patagonia Works. Eric Schatzker is an editor-at-large with Bloomberg Television, where he interviews newsmakers in global finance, investing, and policymaking. Their conversation was held June 26, 2018. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. 
Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.